In July 2009, the 6th World Conference of Science Journalists came to London, bringing together writers, editors, scientists and science communicators from across the globe. One strand of the conference, supported by the Wellcome Trust, focused specifically on issues related to reporting on biomedical science in the global media. Over the conference, sessions ranged from cancer to creationism and from the role of PR to the reputation of the pharmaceutical industry. Having attended many of the sessions, a number of key themes became clear to me, the first of which was the importance and the challenge of ensuring that science reporting on medical issues is accurate. This was highlighted by the sessions on cancer reporting. Here's Anna Wagstaff, assistant editor and writer for Cancer World magazine, explaining why accurate science reporting is so vital. I think it's a mismatch between what the news agenda that we feel obliged to follow and the issues that we know are in effect important for patients and important for the public to know because many of them will one day be patients. They have to get an informed idea of their risks and about um, what their treatment options might be and about the standards and what matters in treatment in terms of their outcome and quality of life. These things become immensely important when you are a patient or when you have a patient in your family and yet the most important things rarely get a mention anywhere in the newspapers. What you do get is an awful lot of coverage of things like new drug stories which are taken completely out of context of the service in which they're delivered often overstate what they can contribute to what matters to patients and they distort the agenda by not looking at other issues to do with for instance, the importance of quality of surgery, which still cures far more patients than drugs do, as does radiotherapy. So it's distortion of the agenda, a mismatch between what actually comes out and gets coverage in the news and what in practice is important for our viewers, readers and listeners. But do science journalists get it right? It seems that it depends who you ask. The view from the lab is slightly damning, as I found out when I spoke to Axel Ulrich, a cancer researcher and director of molecular biology at the Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry in Germany. In general, the coverage is not very good, unfortunately. But it's, I also realise that it's a big problem reporting about scientific issues, especially scientific issues that affect you know, hundreds of thousands of people and and they are desperately, the patients are desperately searching for, for answers, for their fears, for their questions, for, you know, question for new cures or new treatments. So uh, reporters that are specialized in this field, they, of course, want to respond to, to this need of such patients. And uh, unfortunately, in order to understand the problem and also the potential breakthroughs or advances, one has to have a lot of scientific understanding. Everything that uh, the reporter does to simplify the questions or the problems uh, you know, automatically leads to misinformation. And that is, that is, I think, the key problem. So what can we do as science writers? The first thing seems to be to track down expert sources, advice and opinion. Iris Pasternak, a medical researcher from the Finnish Office for Health Technology Assessment, has some helpful advice. Published peer-reviewed articles are, of course, the basis, but as we know that there are several uh, 
articles from a single topic and they usually or they tend to have uh, conflicting results. So therefore we should sort of screen all the published literature in all this world in the databases and that is too uh, time uh, demanding. Therefore there's uh, this uh, huge uh, information product called systematic reviews. They are um, well systematically and transparently collected reliable critically appraised information on a certain topic. And uh, one of the world's most um, prominent or reliable systematic review producers is a Cochrane collaboration, especially if it's about uh, uh, treatments or uh, effectiveness of medical or healthcare interventions. The the, uh, Cochrane dot org pages or the Cochrane library is certainly worthwhile uh, checking. So... There's Cochrane Reviews and other expert reviews of the scientific evidence. But where else should journalists be looking for expert opinion? It may seem easy in some countries, such as the UK, but it's not as easy in others, as Anna Wagstaff explains. There is a big difference, I think, um, in countries that perhaps have got more developed sources and websites and organisations where journalists can turn to when they need some very quick credible information but that is a problem for all of us Um, when you're under a deadline you've got a story that you've been asked to cover and you need to find credible sources Um, and I think that perhaps this is an issue that some countries could learn from other countries a lot about um, the advantages of being able to um, identify credible sources it's something that there's been a certain amount of progress on in the UK um, the um, Behind the Headlines website was one of the things that was mentioned. It's a resource that's not open to many other countries. Another important source of information is the scientists themselves. Fiona Fox, director of the London Science Media Centre, presented a session on the centre's response to the UK media debate and government vote on hybrid embryo and stem cell research in 2008. I asked her to describe how the Science Media Centre got accurate messages about embryo research out to journalists. Well, actually, lots of physical press conferences, which I know is kind of old-fashioned these days, but we did actually... There were lots of critical points in in this whole saga where we actually phoned up all the key scientists, Ian Wilmart, Chris Shaw, Stephen Minger, Lyle Armstrong from Newcastle, and said, please come down into the centre because Mark Henderson from The Times, Fiona McRae from The Daily Mail, they're asking questions about what this means and the easiest way is to get you in the room for one hour, be able to answer all their questions. So I think it, it ended up we had about six or seven press briefings over the course of a year. So how does this work in practice? Jackie Thornton is a freelance medical and science journalist and she's former health editor at the UK paper The Sun. Where does she turn to for advice about some of the more hysterical scare stories so beloved of the tabloid media? I think the use of the term scare story is a bit overplayed. Um, Obviously, on some occasions, there have been scare stories. Um, But I think the papers do uh, want to run stories which engage readers, and it may be that they um, use strong terms to get readers interested. However, I was always very uh, very clear that it was important to put these stories into context. And so, at the sun, certainly, we often had... um, comment boxes, background boxes and opinion pieces by myself where I would put the story into context and also use people like Carol Cooper who was a GP and a widely recognised expert uh, in in science and medical communications so that it wasn't just the the broad, bold news story, actually um, the actual reality of the situation, the context was put in this place as well. 
Obviously, one of the best ways to understand a scientific story is to get involved. One fascinating session at the conference highlighted the $1,000 genome, the prospect that we'll one day be able to have our genome sequenced at relatively low cost. Some journalists are already persuading their editors to pay for a spot of genome sequencing, but should they have it done, and how should they approach reporting genetic stories? Here's Mark Walport, Chief Executive of the Wellcome Trust, with his own expert opinion. Um, I think my advice in terms of having it done at the moment is that I think that it's more about fun and interest than it is about science at this stage. Um, and, but I think that we're learning very fast, so I think uh, it, it's, it's very early days for this. And, of course, this is, these aren't clinical-grade tests, so they're not subject to the sorts of quality control that tests that are done in, for example, the National Health Service are provided. So as long as one understands the context and that actually it's more about curiosity and interest than about actually direct medical practice at this stage, then I think that's important. When it comes to covering genetic stories in the press, we see a lot of things like uh, gene discovered for X disease or um, genetic testing can tell us this and that. Mm. How do you think journalists should approach writing these kind of stories? I think, as with all stories, journalists should try and capture the balance and the uncertainty. Um, I think the problem is often in the headline rather than in the body of the text, and the headline writer often likes something that's rather clear-cut, whereas the actual story is more complicated. So, blaming the sub-editors as always. The second theme that really stood out for me was the discussions of balance in reporting on science stories and whether science journalists should be cheerleaders or watchdogs for science. James Randerson from The Guardian shares his thoughts on the matter. Most science journalists come from a science background, have a great passion for science and naturally feel, you know, they're, they're interested in it and they want to share it and uh, there is a tendency to feel they want to defend it too. And, you know, I come from that sort of background too. I've got a PhD in evolutionary genetics. So it's clear where my sympathies lie in the, in the kind of evolution-creationism debate. Now, I don't think you need to, you know, take the, the, the question of journalistic balance to the extreme and say creationism is a legitimate point of view and um, it should be reported in the same way as in opposition to, um, to evolution. I mean, that's clearly, to my mind, that's clearly absurd because it's, it's not a scientific position, it's incorrect. The idea that the Earth is 6,000 years old is just wrong and roundly dispute, disproved, you know, so it's... It's pretty sterile to go around including that as a, as a kind of legitimate view in your reports. But there are sort of subtleties here. I mean, to what extent are you always a cheerleader for science? Um, and, and to what extent do you step back and say, well, actually, these scientists, although I agree with them, they're using dubious tactics in order to get across um, their views on evolution, and that should be... Exposed. I, I think there's a, a difficulty for journalists because they sometimes feel, science journalists, feel sort of part of the scientific community. And so even if they see something like that going on, they know it'll sort of be frowned upon if they report on it. Journalists are brought up to believe in balance, in telling both sides of the story. But can you really do this in cases such as reporting on creationism or other situations where the vast majority of the scientific evidence is on only one side? John Torkelson is a science reporter for Swedish National Radio. I feel that as a science journalist, you can't just um, let anyone have their say because that means uh, putting um, um, you know, competent scientists with, uh, with basically hundreds of years of evidence behind them, putting them on an equal footing with um, 
basically cranks and you know pseudo scientists who are willing to to say basically anything to to make a buck. Uh, it's it's a really difficult part of a, of our job as science journalists to to try to present different voices and to to present um, how science is often doesn't reach you know exact conclusions uh, quickly but but at the same time sort of uh, letting readers and listeners know that uh, know where the evidence lies it's uh, it's really difficult a lot of times so a balanced view doesn't necessarily mean one person saying yes one person saying no for a, a typical journalist that would be the way to get balanced when you're dealing with just opinions that's fine uh, political opinions or whatever but science isn't about opinions it's about evidence and so as a science journalist, you have to be able to judge evidence to a certain extent. With something as clear-cut as the nonsense of so-called creationist science, it's easy to bang the drum for real science. But there are plenty of science and health stories appearing in the media that seem genuine, but might just be the creations of PR agencies. Ben Goldacre, medical doctor and writer of the Bad Science blog and Guardian column, has little patience for such stories. But how can we spot them? Well, firstly, there are the sort of wacky stories. All men will have big willies built on the back of the Bravo uh, evolution report. You know, there are a million examples. It's a significant portion of the science content that you see um, in newspapers and on television. So, you know, there are the wacky stories, the kind of scientists have found the equation for the perfect cup of tea, which are always promotional content for um, one brand or another. PR people call it advertising equivalent exposure. They know that if you want to get your brand into the news pages of a national newspaper. The way to do it is to write a stupid science story and then attach it to your brand. And they know that the science writers and, and the editors of national newspapers are so ignorant, so venal and so lazy that they will just take it and run with it. But then right at the other end of the scale, you've got things like, you know, um, miracle pills to improve school performance and behaviour and, you know, the pharmaceutical industry peddling their wares. Harsh criticism indeed, but does it really matter? What are the risks of us continuing down our merry way, paved with pr field stories about big willies and magic beans? Well, firstly, there's an opportunity cost. While people are covering stupid stories, they're not covering meaningful ones. Um, and then there's the direct cost, you know, it's not true to say that fish oil pills improve school performance and behaviour in children. You're misleading the public. It's extraordinary to me that science journalists and health journalists are so insightless about this because the quality of, of, of media coverage of health and science has deteriorated to the point where now it's a serious danger to public health. The World Cancer Research Fund recently commissioned YouGov to do a survey of 2,000 people and they found that half of all the people they surveyed said they thought that scientists were always changing their mind about what a healthy lifestyle advice looks like. And that's not true. Healthy lifestyle advice has been unchanged for at least a decade. But journalists, by endlessly rehashing these stupid stories, you know, the Daily Mail's ongoing project of dividing all the inanimate objects in the world into the ones that either cause or cure cancer, journalists have deliberately confused the public with these stupid sensationalist stories. And what's more, they found that a quarter of the respondents said, well, because... Scientists are always changing their mind about what a healthy lifestyle looks like. You might as well just give up and do whatever you want. Now, that is a public health emergency. That is people who are ignoring healthy lifestyle advice specifically because they've been misled by journalists. And when I told the journalists in, in the room at the World Conference of Science Journalists today that I thought they had blood on their hands from misleading the public, they laughed. And that is a, that is a broken profession to me. Steady on, Ben. 
Is this reputation always deserved? Here's Jackie Thornton again, former health editor of UK tabloid The Sun. I uh, have been a UK journalist for uh, 20 years. I've worked on broadsheet and tabloid, and I have to say that my experience of working in tabloid for uh, doing health coverage, I really have to say that the work and the effort put in by the journalists I know to produce accurate and fair stories is immense. And so it, it does get very frustrating when you do hear stories of you know, the, the media, and particularly the tabloids, being um, criticised for inaccurate reporting. Um, because I, I, would, I was often you know, writing seven stories a day at the sum, not all seven would go in. Um, maybe, maybe on a good day, three to four would go in with a page lead, but I always made sure that I put them in context reported them accurately um, and I knew the people to contact maybe Cancer Research UK maybe different universities or specialists uh, the Science Media Centre incredibly useful uh, so that uh, I, I knew that uh, any story I was writing I would get the response uh, and, and, and information to, to, to get it right so that I wasn't just necessarily writing a story I was going down the garden path by somebody with a vested interest. So, science, PR and press releases are a necessary evil in Jackie's view, as long as you have the expert help to back it up. But can science PR ever be a force for good? Simon Denigry, chief executive of the Association of Medical Research Charities, thinks that it does have its place, and certainly for charities. Well, I think just as you've seen uh, medical research charities have an increasing role in actually funding, so um, alongside that you've seen them become much more sophisticated in terms of uh, putting out PR messages, you know, employing PR companies, doing public awareness campaigns. There's a very sort of parallel stream of work there, I think. And I think that's a good thing, um, but I think as the sort of debate highlighted this afternoon where um, charities are clearly not seeing the media as a route to go through and trying to do more sort of direct-to-patient uh, or direct-to-consumer type PR. I think that raises uh, not necessarily bad issues, but I, what I think that raises for them that they need to think very carefully about how their message is going to be heard, how their information is going to be used, uh, you know, what sort of um, feedback loop is there going to be to them. You know, it's a very different relationship they're forming now with a patient than perhaps 10 or 15 years ago when I first started working in the sector. But that's charities, the goodies. What about industry PR, the real baddies in Ben Goldacre's view? Simon Denigree again. Well, I think the industry could be more open and transparent about what it does. I, I actually think that the forging of relationships between industry and patient groups and medical research charities is a good thing because I think um, it's important for patients to be there in helping pharmaceutical companies devise research strategy but also in terms of getting their messages out. Where I have a real problem, and actually I don't know why they do this because they don't need to do this, is where a, a, a company decides to set up a patient group and fund it and try and pretend it's something that it isn't. And I think that's, uh, that's something I worry about a lot because I think um, that's... Uh, I think that's being duplicitous with the public. And I think we should all be careful. We should all be monitoring that very carefully. The industry bodies, uh, charities, um, uh, you know, the media, I think we should come down on that as hard as we can. So how should science journalists be behaving? If we can't be cheerleaders for the scientific establishment or individual scientists, at least we can wave our flags for the scientific method and rationality, as The Guardian's James Randerson points out. I think so. I mean, my, my approach is, is certainly to come from a basis of rational argument and evidence-based discussion. I think if you sort of abandon that, then, as one of the speakers was saying, you're quickly into the realm of homeopathy and crystal healing and dubious things like that. I think it's important to have that 
that sort of basis for your for your thinking, but but you do have to kind of stand certainly stand back from the scientific establishment, which you know sometimes does very uh, stupid things or devious things that should be uh, should be exposed, and certainly from individual scientists who you know have human failings like anyone else. So, what hope then for fair and balanced coverage? I mean, you know, one person's fair and balanced is another person's Fox News. You know, I mean, some some re- readers will disagree with your sort of frame of reference, and I think you have to kind of take that on board and, and realise that. All food for thought, and in Randerson's opinion, this introspection is a good thing. It's good, I think, as a community that we uh, we debate these issues um, about how far science journalists go go native in their field and um, to what extent we're cheerleaders for science. And then we're aware of those things. We have them in the back of our mind. I'm actually the producer of a session tomorrow that I'm also chairing about investigative journalism in, in science because and there are all sorts of reasons why investigative journalism doesn't happen as much as it should to do with resources and time and things like that. But I, I also think there's a problem that science journalists are prone to feeling part of the community that they're reporting on and so uh, are less likely to ask awkward questions and rattle cages sometimes, which I think is a bad thing. One of the most controversial sessions at the conference was entitled Who Shapes Public Opinion on the Pharmaceutical Industry? The debate featured pro-pharma representatives from the industry and also very negative views from patient groups. It was difficult to see where the middle ground lay as each speaker seemed so convinced of their own arguments. Afterwards, I spoke to Sarah Garner, Associate Director for Research and Development at NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, to hear her advice for journalists reporting on such thorny and polarised issues. I I think it's be very much aware of the source of the information you're getting. So, for example, if you're using a press release from a PR company, um, just be aware that the the release is likely to be biased in some way because they're promoting a particular side of the story. So to stop and ask questions to say what is the other um, pieces of information around this jigsaw and go look for them. Um, and there are some very good sites um, that are springing up about um, that give reliable information on healthcare and unbiased and impartial. For particular interventions, the Cochrane Library is fantastic. Um, they look at new, new um, interventions that have come through and also um, things that the public are more familiar with, so perhaps things you can buy over the counter. Um, NHS Evidence is NICE's new website, um, which came out of the DARSI review. We just launched it in April. Um, and it's got a, a super sensitive Google search word. So it's an intelligent searching engine. Um, and it'll actually pull up the better quality evidence and the more relevant in- information first. So you're likely to get quicker information um, and access the information that you need. Um, and another one for basic information about health um, and different diseases is NHS Choices, which is aimed at patients. Um, but it also it, it's very easy to understand the, the different, um, very often very complicated things about health. Earlier on, we heard a fairly damning perspective on science reporting from a practising scientist. If we're sometimes getting it so wrong in the scientist's view, what can we do to get it right? Axel Ulrich again. Well, I would say journalists under any circumstances should not try to please the reader, to please the patients who may read this and tell them wrong stories. They should be responsible and honest and talk to scientists who are not trying to put themselves into the limelight, but are also honest and responsible and explain the, the truth and be realistic. 
This may not be the most comforting thing for, for many patients, but if you uh, conduct such a, an interview with the scientists also on a, a very, very uh, factual basis, then uh, I think a good journalist will make a good story out of it. And finally, after all the hand-wringing and agonising over journalistic accuracy, Christina Scott, African news editor for the SciDevNet website, has a refreshingly different point of view. On my day-to-day life, I fight very hard for accuracy, but in the broader scheme of things, bugger the accuracy. I want it to be fun. I want it to get read. I want it to get viewed. I want it to get listened to. And that is actually more important than the fact that in the last three words of the caption, somebody got something slightly screwed up. Because your average person is not reading it for that level of accuracy. We are not talking about peer-reviewed journals. We're talking about media. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And we can fix it as we go along, by and large. I think that this obsession with accuracy is never-ending. Accurate enough for who? You can be so accurate that nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. We put a, an epidemiologist on radio once who was asked a very simple question by the presenter. The question was, does HIV cause AIDS? And he said no, because he wanted to say, no, it's not that simple. Not everybody who has HIV goes on to develop AIDS. But the fact is, he said no, and then he went on to a lot of lot of detail that nobody listened to. And I asked people, what was the take-home message that they got? And they said, he said, we're not going to get AIDS. So I mean, you can put in so much accurate information that people's brains actually stop functioning. They don't absorb the information in the way that you intended to do it. At least if you're having fun, They're more likely to engage with the subject and they're more likely to go away thinking that science is relevant and important and interesting. As you might expect, getting a bunch of journalists together for a week led to some fascinating and occasionally controversial exchanges, especially over the reporting of biomedical stories. We leave the last word to the conference strands funder. Here's Mark Wolpert from the Wellcome Trust highlighting what he considers to be the overall theme of the conference. I think the overall theme is that science journalism is extremely important. Um, It's very important that the public gets a good, accurate insight into what scientific research is about. Uh, The session I've just been in, which is on human genomics, is one that people are very interested in. It's a subject that does get onto the front pages of newspapers. But from a trust perspective, it's very important that there's a balanced debate that science journalism is accurate... Um, and that the public have the opportunity to engage with the subject as well as possible. And so I think an event like this, which brings together journalists and the scientific community, is extremely important.